Today's TripCast is presented by the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute. The Engage and Excel conference brings together key leaders from across Texas with the goal of improving mental health care in our state and beyond. More at engageandexcel.org. And TASBO. In the documentary Heroes in Harvey, discover how Texas public schools met the challenge of Hurricane Harvey at tasbo.org slash hurricane hyphen Harvey. Texas talking. Hi, this is Eric Erickson, editor of TheResurgent.com. Every year I bring together conservative thought leaders to talk about public policy. This year we're doing it in Austin, Texas, the first weekend in August. You're going to have Greg Abbott, Matt Bevan, Mark Walker, Ajit Pai, Ted Cruz, David Perdue, and many more. So text Austin to 345-345 and find out how to come have a beer with me and listen to these speakers And then I'll be back for the Tribune Festival later this year. Right now, it's time for the TribCast, and here's your host, Patrick Svitek. Thank you. This is Patrick here on Thursday, July 12th with your Texas Tribune TribCast, our weekly Texas politics and policy podcast. I'm joined this week by CEO Evan Smith. What's up? Executive Editor Ross Ramsey. Howdy. And reporter Nina Satija. Hello. Somehow I feel like we can behave badly when Emily's not here. <laughs> exactly. It's like mom's For not sure. home. Right. All right. Uh, a reminder, we'll be taking your questions uh, via Facebook and Twitter, so please send them our way, and we'll try our best to get to as many as possible. Uh, before we get into our usual discussion today, we have a special guest first up. Uh, it's Democratic Congressman Beto O'Rourke, who's running for U.S. Senate against Republican Ted Cruz. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it. So you announced last night that you raised over uh, $10.4 million in the second quarter of this year. Uh, you again outraised uh, Senator Cruz by a wide margin, uh, and it again tops the, the $6.7 million you raised in, in the first quarter. Uh, tell us what you think changed in the, in the past three months in your campaign uh, to see uh, such a substantial increase in fundraising. Well, it's something that we've been seeing on the ground in the 254 counties that we have visited in Texas. Um, more people are coming out. The intensity at those meetings, um, the urgency behind the questions that are asked at the town hall or the statements that are made or the suggestions that people give us and how we can do a better job or what they're expecting from us in the Senate, all, all of that is is only increasing. And um, and so to, to see it reflected in, in how much people have donated to support the campaign is incredibly gratifying, not totally surprising. Um, and I think it just, it matches the urgency of this moment. And so, um, you know, we're just, I, I'm very lucky to be part of something like this in Texas. And as you know, no PACs, um, no corporations, no special interests. This is this is all people, mostly from Texas. 215,000 individual donors, Congressman, according to your campaign? Yeah, 215,714 um, to be precise. Yeah. Um, from all over. Yeah. And, and the overwhelming majority of that, your campaign says, is continuing to come from Texas. Tell us a little bit about that, because that's a question that we always get here. And even as we're talking right now, we have a question coming in about how much is how much of the money and how many of the contributions are coming from Texas. Yeah, j- jerks on Twitter think you got all this money from Barbara Streisand. <laughs> right. No, it's it's more than 70 percent from Texas, from Texans. 
Um, and, and it's folks from, from all over. Um, there's um, a woman from Raines County who we, I met when I was there in Emory. We did a town hall. And uh, she will shoot me an email every now and then and, and remind me that she and her daughter, she's a single mom, are sacrificing movie night every month so that they can send 30 bucks to the campaign. Uh, we just had a town hall in Tarrant County at North Richland Hills. And afterwards, we stayed to talk to and shake hands and take pictures with anyone who'd like to. And I can't tell you how many people say, I sent you my monthly contribution again. You know, so, so many folks are doing that 15 or 30 or 50 bucks a month. That, that's really what's driving this and, and funding us. And so um, this, this is Texans stepping up and making possible what so many thought was, uh, you know, unlikely at best, uh, impossible at worst. Um, so, again, um, th- this, is, this is really about Texas right now. Yeah. How, how are we going to see this manifest? I mean, you've got this uh, impressive fundraising thing going. You've got all this money in the bank. Does this mean there's a bank of TV ads that's going to hit us before the election? Or exactly what are you planning to do with all the resources? I think a lot of it will go to supporting the, the largest volunteer team that I've ever seen in Texas, maybe that, that we any of us have ever seen in Texas, um, just opened field offices in Lubbock, in Longview, uh, two places that we're, we're not used to seeing Democrats who are running statewide opening offices in, um, supporting you know, logistically you know, tens of thousands of people who are knocking on doors, who are making phone calls, who are texting. And yes, you'll, you'll see us on TV a little bit, uh, probably hear us on the radio, um, online, in newspapers. Uh, one, one of the great things about visiting 254 counties is uh, getting to talk to the, to the writers, the reporters, the editors in newspapers uh, all over the state. Uh, the Jefferson Jimplicute, um, the, the Brian Daily Eagle, um, you know, the, the Madisonville Meteor. Um, so I, I want to make sure that if you didn't happen to read the article, if you didn't show up at the town hall, that you're a reader of that newspaper, that you, you still know that, that we were there and that we care about the issues in that community. And that's, again, I think part of the, the value and the power of being, being everywhere, showing up for everyone, all 254 counties. Just going back to the top of what you said there, you said we, we will see you on TV. I know you, you've sounded somewhat ambivalent in the past about whether you need TV advertising to execute this campaign in the way that you want I, to. I am somewhat ambivalent. I mean, I, anytime I, I watch TV now, I mean, with, with Netflix, with everything else going on in life, um, with how much time I, I spend on my phone, how much time I know people spend on their phones, I wonder to myself, why am I watching TV right now, especially if there are ads on. Um, I, I, I just think we've got to be, um, we're, 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 you know, we've got Lauren's 30 bucks that she and her daughters are sacrificing every month. I got to make the absolute most of that. Um, and I, I'm not convinced that, that, uh, a ton of TV is, is the answer. It's just this scattershot approach. Whereas I think what, what is so powerful and, and almost, um, just unusual today in this in this digital age in in this tribal polarized time is that human to human contact. So the, the more I can facilitate somebody knocking on your door, and that could be an awkward, unusual conversation because who in the hell knocks on doors anymore? Who who talks to anyone unless they have to? Well, who especially in Dimebox, right? That, I mean, it's l- uncomfortable. L- that, that, that's what that's what I want to fund. A lot of the places you've been going, probably there are not a lot of people knocking on doors. That's probably true. 
Um, but to come back to your point about TV, the counter argument to that, Congressman, is who watches TV? Largely older people. Who votes? Largely older people, at least historically that's been the case. What we've all seen from our poll and other polls is that you still have a name ID problem in a lot of parts, uh, a lot of, parts of this state. Is TV one way quickly to remedy that name ID problem, or do you reject the idea that you have a name ID problem to get around? No, I don't reject that idea. I mean, too often I'm, I'm meeting people who will tell me, and this happened just at the town halls we had um, last weekend in, in Arlington and in Dallas and in Tarrant County, folks will say, hey, I, I just found out about you last week, or I didn't know about you, and my sister insisted that I come to this to this event. Um, so so I know that we have a challenge there. And and yes, I, I, I agree with the premise that TV is one way to reach people who may not have otherwise heard of me. It's just a it's a very expensive, not not especially um, targeted way of of doing that. And, and nothing beats being there, li literally showing up. Uh, and that's where, again, if, if I can work with the local newspaper, um, the local broadcast station, um, just the local community, that, that is, is more powerful than anything. And I tell you, Evan, you know this, I've got, as does Veronica, as do any of us who are from there, a, um, you know, an El Paso sized chip on my shoulder from growing up in a community that no one ever came to, that no one ever covered, no one ever listened to, was never reflected or represented in national or statewide policy. And, and I, I've, I've lived that. I understand that. I want to make sure for those communities and the people within them who feel that same way that I did growing up, and I still do sometimes, um, that we're there for them. And, and that is powerful. That is, for me, it has been powerful when anyone showed up, including you, including Texas Tribune, including having a reporter in El Paso. That that means something to our sense of self-worth and pride and who we are and our ability to contribute. So in, in short, however I can amplify what we're already doing by literally physically being there, you're, you're going to see that. Some of it will be TV, but probably not as much as you've seen in other statewide campaigns. And to the degree we can do door knocking, and, and I'm personally knocking on doors in a lot of these places, um, that's, that's powerful as well. Congressman, just in the last minute or two here, I want to touch on, on the news of the week on Capitol Hill. But before you announced your fundraising last night, you, you briefly talked about Brett Kavanaugh, the uh, the president's new Supreme Court nominee. You, you said you had some some pretty serious concerns about him. T tell us what those concerns are, and, and whether uh, you know if you held this Senate seat, you would be you would be a vote against him. I think in a, in a state where we are 49th in in voter turnout, um, not by accident. That this is 100 percent by design and on purpose and is having the intended effect um, to nominate someone who's not a champion of, of voting rights and, and civil rights and access to the ballot box is particularly dangerous and bad for Texas. Um, to have someone who, who doesn't fundamentally agree with um, a woman's right to choose is dangerous in a state that has closed down half of its family planning clinics and is at the epicenter of a maternal mortality crisis, someone who, who disagrees with the premise of net neutrality, this coming, uh, you know, on my part from someone who started a successful internet-based business in the 90s, that, that's going to compromise small business owners in Texas, people wanting to join the workforce or get online or, or politicians wanting to share their, their point of view. So on so many of the fundamental voting rights, civil rights, women's rights uh, to choose, gun safety um, we, we've got a nominee who is wrong for Texas and wrong for the country. So you would oppose him? 
Yes, yes. <laughs> if that didn't come through clearly enough, sure. I'm, I'm just making opposed sure. to his nomination. Would you, would you, I mean, would you give him any consideration? Because we, we see this debate, you know, with the president's nominees all the time, uh, you know, how much consideration certain, uh, you know, we have these red state Senate Democrats who at least, you know, maybe want to meet with them and hold open the possibility they could support him. I mean, if you were in the Senate today, how would you, how would you navigate that? You'd be open yeah, to hearing from it, him? It's an interesting question because... You know, I, I don't have the ability to conduct further due diligence by actually meeting with the nominee. I don't have right. a, a full staff who can go into all of you know his decisions in the past. But from what I can read, thanks to the press and the reporting and um, the precedent in, in his decisions, um, you know, he's, he's not someone that I could support. And so I just want to make sure I give you uh, a straight answer on that. But yes, I, I think every nominee is deserving of greater due diligence of the hearings that are going to take place. Um, I'm, I'm going to intently listen to his answers to the questions that members of the Senate ask him. But but given what I know uh, of him and his decisions so far, he's not somebody that I could support. Got it. Well, we're already over our time with you. So thank you uh, very much. Oh, does Nina, I think Nina may have a question. If you have one yeah. more minute, Congressman, I'd sure, like to, yeah. Go for it. you know, you've obviously been very vocal on the issue of family separation on the border. Uh, we heard from the federal government this morning that the reunification process is, I believe the quote is complete for the toddlers under the age of five who Judge uh, Sabra had said needed to be reunited with their parents by Tuesday's deadline. Uh, what do you think? Do you think it's really complete? Do you believe that? It's it's uh, if it's complete, it's it's complete um, in in the most incomplete way possible. Um, <laughs> there there are dozens of children under the age of five who have yet to be reunited with parents. Um, there are massive obstacles that the government has put in the way, beginning with not having a plan in the first place to track and reunite these families when they were detained and separated on, on an industrial scale. Um, we are tracking 48 cases in my office. Um, some of them, all of them children, some of them under the age of five. And I think we still have uh, cases under the age of five where, where those children have not been reunited with their, with their family. As you know, the administration blew the original deadline set by the judge. Um, they have another upcoming deadline for all the remaining children, which I'm concerned that they will not be able to, to meet as well. So the urgency and the pressure that all of us brought to bear, all of us, on stopping the policy of family separation, taking kids from parents, we just need to keep that pressure up on reunification and then completely stopping this idea that we're going to detain entire families together, which seems to be plan B for the administration. Right. And so you, you said your office is tracking 48 families, some of whom have children under the age of five and have not yet been reunited, right? Correct. And, and most of them, we were able to work with Annunciation House, which is okay. one of the most effective organizations on the ground to shelter and advocate for asylum seekers in this country. And essentially, as parents are released from ICE detention and begin the search for their kids, um, we are able to, to meet with those parents, get all the information and then become their advocates. In fact, I'm, I'm happy to tell you we were just successful in reuniting a grandmother with um, the grandson that she was the, um, the legal custodian for. Um, she had been sitting in ICE detention in El Paso for 10 months, though she tried to lawfully cross at the Santa Teresa port of entry in New Mexico with her grandson, uh, for whom she had the appropriate documentation. But as so often happens, that documentation is taken from her, that child is taken from her, they are separated 
um, and uh, and they have a very hard time, absent advocacy from an office or a group like Annunciation House, in in reconnecting again. So th- there are some some outlying success stories, um, but that success comes at too dear a price. Uh, including the suffering of that child and that grandmother. And it's happening hundreds, now thousands of times over again in in this country. But we're every single one of those in El Paso that we can get our hands on. Um, Not only are we tracking, we're becoming the the principal advocate for, and and again, seeing some success, but, but not enough. It sounds like that case you're talking about is the one our reporter Julian Aguilar wrote about. So that's great news. Um, And it sounds like most of the families that your, your office is tracking have actually been released from detention, right? But of course, you, you, you're, you're worried that that's not going to be the case going forward, which is also what we've reported, that, that they're not going to continue to release these parents in order to reunite them with their kids. Correct. So, so the majority, if not all, of those cases that I just described are parents who have been released from ICE custody, perhaps for time already served, and, and are now beginning the process of trying to find their kids. Many of them I've had a chance to meet with personally, again, sometimes thanks to Annunciation House, um, where I get to learn their stories, why they fled the Northern Triangle countries, in some cases, why they fled Mexico. And you, you may have reported on this as well. We're seeing an uptick in asylum cases and claims from, from Mexico, yeah. uh, which is a, somewhat of a, a new development. But, but in, in every case, it boils down to the governments of these countries uh, being incapable of protecting their own citizens from death or violence, rape or kidnapping, and, and the United States being literally the last place to which they can turn. And, and we have been that, that harbor, that place of refuge or asylum for hundreds of years going. And, and this, this really is unprecedented for 100% of those families who are seeking asylum, who could not enter at a port of entry in some cases. You've also reported that CBP has, for the first time in my life, stood on the international line at the Paso de Norte Bridge yeah. and not allowed people to set foot literally in the U.S. to claim asylum lawfully, therefore providing the perverse incentive of crossing illegally, where they're then prosecuted like common criminals, have their kids taken from them, and face the prospect of, at best, family detention, deportation back to the country from which they fled, at worst, this, this separation, which... By the way, th- this current policy is just a reprieve from separation. The administration has said if we can't get family detention, if we can't effectively overturn Flores, then we're going to begin separating families again. So, so this fight is still on in earnest, and, and all of us have to be all of us have to be there for it. All right, Congressman, thank you uh, so much for for joining us today. We really appreciate your time. Likewise, thank you very much. Bye bye. Okay, so going back to the uh, fundraising, how much is uh, $10.4 million in a single quarter? It's a shit ton of money, Patrick. That's a technical term. Right, yeah, it's in Wikipedia right there under shit ton. It's right. 10.4. Look, uh, you know, there have been qu- quarters where candidates have raised uh, tons of money uh, running for the Senate over the last, say, 10 years. I think Rick Lazio against Hillary Clinton in 2000 is the record. I believe he did $22 million in one quarter. Sharon Angle against Harry Reid in 2010 raised $14 million. Elizabeth Warren against Scott Brown in 2012. I believe it was 2012. Is that right? 14. 20, I think it was. No, maybe it was 12. Maybe it was 12. Yeah. Well, Elizabeth Warren, yeah, six years ago. She's on the ballot again now, so it right. would have been the first time. She raised, I think, 12 point something millions. Rick Scott, the governor of Florida, running against Bill Nelson for the Senate this year, raised more than $10 million. But you know what? Beto would be fifth. If that's true, if, if a, those numbers are right, he is fifth. And if you take out self-funders, right. Right. he's actually third or second most in a quarter. 
it's a very significant accomplishment to raise that much money at the federal level with federal campaign giving limits and to not have that money come from PACs. It's significant that he raised two and a half times more than Ted Cruz. I actually think the cash on hand number is more interesting, Ross. I wonder if you agree which, than the actual Which is, raising. I don't think we were able to get this with him, but he now has $14 million cash on hand. A little hand. more than 14. Cruz has announced a little bit more than little, $10 A little, little more than $10 million. So in Texas, you burn about $2 million a week if you do a full tilt boogie uh, TV campaign. So That's also a technical term. Yeah, right. right. So, so five weeks of TV. I mean, you know, this gets into the category in a particular way that the Wendy Davis campaign was in four years ago, and that is that you, you know, whatever the autopsy says after this race, whether, you know, whoever wins, no, neither side will have failed for lack of money. You know, oftentimes you get a campaign that's starved, running against an incumbent, and you say, well, they didn't have the resources to do it. This campaign has the resources to do it. Even, you know, to some extent, even if they stopped today, this is more than, um, I think we're past what Ron Kirk spent against um, John Cornyn um, back when in that uh, big contested race. It's been a long time in a U.S. Senate race in Texas since a Democrat and a Republican both had sufficient resources to prosecute a race. Right. And do we agree that Cruz is taking this race seriously at this point? I mean, he raised $4.6 million. It was his biggest fundraising Well, he is quarter. as of 801 last night. Well, I he think he has been. he wasn't before. <laughs> I think he I think has he been has the whole been time. He's very seriously, yeah. of course. He, he snuck up on a very strong candidate in 2012, and he knows what that's like uh, in David Dewhurst. By the and, way, he was also the candidate he's in that race who did this. not have the most money in the race. Right. It was so four guys in a card has, table Even for if O'Rourke has more money, O'Rourke is effectively David Dewhurst. <laughs> well, right. I mean, seriously. I think Cruz, Cruz is David Dewhurst in this thing. But well, look, Cruz, Cruz, was, a, Cruz was able to beat a guy with more money. Sure. So Cruz running against a guy with more money, been there, done that. I think Got Cruz, the T-shirt. I, I think right? by the time this is over, Cruz will have more money. And I think it's because he's, he's going to have late pack money and third-party money that O'Rourke is turning away. And, you know, the but like I said, I think both sides have and will have the money to prosecute this thing. It's not going to be... Whoever loses isn't going to lose for lack of resources. Right. 70% from Texas, if that's the number I saw quoted last night. I'd love to have backup on that. But 70% from Texas is a defensible number. Is that dollars or people? My my read, again, of what I understand to be the case with this quarter is that 70% of the total came from Texas. Total dollar amount. Uh, His campaign actually says 70% of the number of contributions. So, so, so okay, pardon me. So it's seventy so, percent of the two hundred and fifteen thousand such and such. That's what they're saying. Okay. Right. So, so what does that tell you about the provenance of this money? Is that sufficient? Is that a defensible number? Well, I mean, they're both going to. going to be some difference in it. I mean, did he get right. you know max? Did all the people out of state max out? I suspect in a race like this that because he ran as a national candidate, uh, Ted Cruz is going to both collect contributions from people who might not otherwise have any interest in a Texas Senate race, people who like him because of the presidential run. And Beto O'Rourke is going to collect money from people who didn't like him in the presidential run. And they're both going to get money from places that ordinarily don't play in Texas and from people who don't ordinarily play in Texas. One other thing on this race before we move on that happened this week, and (laughs) there wasn't actually real movement, but the the candidates are still wrangling over this idea of debates and when they're going to debate, how how much they're going to debate. And the O'Rourke campaign sent a letter to the Cruz campaign Monday saying, hey, it's been two months since we wanted to start coordinating debates. Where are you? The Cruz campaign responded, look, Senator Cruz still wants to debate, but, you know, we'll let you know when we're ready to talk details. Um, Is Cruz just dragging his his feet here, or is this a— The incumbent sets the terms 
of the debate conversation. It's been ever thus. It will be ever thus. This is playing out exactly as these things play out, don't you think? Yeah. Yeah, this is the classic debate debate. You know, we've got two versions of it going right now. You exactly, know, yeah. The governor jumped in and sort of preempted the debate debate or, you know, made a, made a pretty good stab at preempting a debate debate the other day by saying we've set this up with uh, Nexstar and their 12, is it 12 TV stations? Um, for I believe so, and then a, three partner stations in for, some of the big for cities. For a Saturday yeah. in September, for, or a Friday, Fri Friday, sorry, no, sorry, sorry. Friday night during high school football yeah. season. Yeah. They checked and they discovered that uh, scheduling the debate opposite the Super Bowl was after the election, so they right. couldn't do that. Um, so they're now going to do it against a high school football game. So, you know, basically right. said yes to a debate, so preempted all that, you know, the governor says he won't debate, all of the stuff that you normally hear in these things. The Senate race is a more... You know, this is the more common debate debate where you've got a challenger saying, hey, I'd like to debate, and the incumbent saying, in due time. Do you think right. uh, uh, Lupe Valdez has got to say yes? Yeah. I do. I think this is, I know they didn't say it yesterday, but I think for the Abbott campaign, this is kind of like take it or leave it. Um, yeah. They haven't said whether this could be the only debate offer on the table. It may be the best that it gets for Lupe Valdez. She can't say he didn't do it, and that's well, the strongest thing in a debate. If she says no, debate. then she can't say, well, he won't debate me. Right. right, right. We could we could talk about fundraising all day, but one other point I wanted to hit was the congressional candidate fundraising we saw this week was a, which was a whole other headline in and of itself. We had f four Democratic congressional candidates in Texas announced raising over one million dollars. Republican incumbents haven't said anything yet, but it's safe to say those are pretty competitive numbers. What's driving that? Is it the same, you know, Democratic enthusiasm that's driving Beto work? Or I think that's part of it. I think part of it, you know, Evan and I were talking this morning, you know, before we started taping. I think part of this is that the governor's race isn't scooping up all of the Democratic money in the way that it has in past years. And, you know, it may be that Lupe Valdez opens a, finds a spigot and turns it on here and, and starts raising a bunch of money. But right now, the money available to Democrats in the state of Texas is not getting lapped up by the governor's race, and a bunch of it's going uh, apparently to Beto O'Rourke, and a bunch of it's going to these these four candidates and to others. The, uh, the the fact that there are Democratic donors willing to give to congressional races at this level is eye-opening. It doesn't mean that those candidates are going to win. It doesn't mean that those races are going to be competitive any more than it means right. that Congressman O'Rourke is going to be competitive. It does mean that they have the resources to compete. But, you know, the M.J. Hager example is a good one. That's a Republican plus nine or plus ten district. The fact that she raised a million one uh, in this last quarter doesn't change that. Right. It just changes her ability to run an uphill race. Right. right? She gets more expensive running shoes, but it's still an uphill race. Right. right. I'd echo what uh, our Abby Livingston wrote yesterday in one of our newsletters that this has to be a relief, at least, to the National Party Committees, the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, to see candidates in Texas running in very expensive markets, Houston, Dallas, San Antonio, being, you know, showing that they're going to be able to have the money and that the DCCC may maybe have a little relief in the fall in terms of coming in and having to prop up some of these cuts, candidates. Cuts down on the number of mouths they have to feed at the national right. level. And they could focus on perhaps more gettable seats in less expensive markets in other parts of the country right. uh, instead of having to worry about this at the end. Right. Um, just got a several minutes left here before our next topic. I'd like to thank another TripCast sponsor, the Independent Bankers Association. Uh, find a bank where you're more than just an account number, a true Texas community bank. Make the switch today at icba.org slash locator.aspx. 
very, <laughs> Write that one you're down. Very at the, you're very good at the mid-podcast <laughs> right, uh, right. advertising spots. Nina, you've you been seem natural at it. <laughs> <laughs> Just saying URLs That was on an the insult. Air, yeah. <laughs> oh, hell yes, it was an insult. Uh, as we talked about with Congressman Ork, you've been following this family separation crisis on the border. Overwhelming but very important story that we want to keep tracking. What's the latest in that? Um, I mean, wh- where are we at in that? I feel like that's kind of faded a little bit from the national conversation. Uh, I would say it's still pretty much at front and center in the national conversation, and the chaos continues. Uh, you know, as I asked, as I talked about with the congressman, the, uh, the, the Trump administration has said that reunification of the children under five with their parents under a federal judge's order is complete. Um, I'm not really sure what that means. I think it is, it is in fact, incomplete. Uh, well, they've got 103 <laughs> kids who are not all rejoined with their Correct. families, Correct. And, right? and, and just to, to, to ch- change that number a little bit, the government has now said that it's actually only 75 kids that were eligible to be reunited, be reunited with their parents because a bunch of the parents apparently had criminal histories, serious criminal histories. Uh, a few of them didn't appear to actually be the parents of the kids. Now, we're just taking the government's word for this. I don't, you know, that's all we can do. Perhaps there are more. But according to the government, as of Tuesday, there were 75 children under the age of five, about 75, who were actually eligible to be reunited with their parents in time for that Tuesday deadline. The government at the time said, we're probably going to pull it off for 38 of the 75. Um, Today, you know, two days after the deadline, right, two days after the deadline, it's Thursday, they've said we've done about 60, I think, is what we reported this morning. So that's not 75. Um, right. Now, of course, there are 12 parents that have been deported. And so they're just not counting those. And they're saying it's complete when they've deported 12 parents without their children who are under the age of five. So <laughs> I don't see how you call that process complete. And of course, now, this is only a very small sliver of the children who are actually separated from their parents and must be rejoined. And I've seen this number between two and 3,000, which seems kind of sloppy. But I know it's, yes. I know it's the numbers that they're giving the quarter, between two and 3,000, Between right? two and 3,000, which is sort of terrifying. Do they know the number? I don't, I don't know. I mean, all I keep seeing is under 3,000. So we don't know, have a better 3, number than that. 75 is under 3,000. Well, 75 <laughs> is just the kids under five. Right. right. <laughs> all of the rest of the kids. We know in total is something like between 2,000 and 3,000, probably closer to 3,000. Uh, maybe there's an exact number out there. Uh, please tweet at me if there is. I don't think that there is. Uh, or email me. <laughs> so I, I just... Send uh, me a question right now. <laughs> you know, and, and a lot of people have asked me a very, what I think is a very good question, which is how do we know it's really 2,000? How do we know it's not 6,000? Well, the answer is we have no idea. This reminds the number of deaths in Puerto Rico after the hurricane. Right. right. We were told it was a certain number, and then we come to find out later that the number may be an order of magnitude, hundred times, thousand times. Exactly. Right. Is. This could conceivably be bigger, and we just wouldn't know. It, it could be bigger, and there's no way to know. And I mean, you know, not to be conspiratorial here, but uh, first of all, we thought that all the children who'd been separated from their families are in a safe place. They're in. They're with foster families. They're in government-run shelters. Uh, my colleagues at Reveal uh, have been reporting this week and last week that as many as 90 children, I think more were housed in a vacant office building in Phoenix, Arizona, that didn't have a kitchen, that only had a few toilets. And after much reporting, they finally got the government contractor operating that facility today to admit that children were there overnight. And if if my colleagues at Reveal had not gone after that story and reported that story, the lie would have continued. And so who knows? I mean, I really do wonder, are there more vacant office buildings out there that are housing children that we don't even know about? It's really, it's really terrifying. What's the status of this, um, the court talking with the, the federal government mm-hmm. and the ACLU and some other parties about 
maybe as a, you know, um, a median solution or a temporary solution, these families can do an either or. How's this going to work? Right? Okay, so here's what's, what's going on is we think there's, let's say it's, it's somewhere close to 3,000 children okay. that are that are supposed to be reunited with their parents according to this federal judge's order by July 26th. Right. And some of them should have been reunited already because they were under the age of five. The ones over the age of five are subject to this July 26th deadline. So we got the surprising news on Monday that the Trump administration was going to release some of those parents from immigration detention in order to reunite them with their kids. But that's never what Trump wanted to do. What he wanted to do was detain families indefinitely. He didn't want to do what he calls pejoratively catch and release, which is you know, uh, let parents just be in the United States somewhere with their kids while their case proceeds there if they're looking for asylum from persecution and, um, you know, from whatever country they're leaving. Right. So he agreed to release some parents, which was a huge surprise to everyone, who's exactly the opposite of what he wanted to do. But what the government is, has told the judge is we don't want to keep releasing parents going forward if... You know, you can't force us to release parents. The judge seems to agree with that. The ACLU agrees, too. There's nothing that forces the government to just release parents en masse under this lawsuit, under this specific lawsuit. And so the government's asked, going forward, to give parents one of two options. One is they remain in detention with their kids. So I guess their kids, reunited if they've been separated... Reunited but behind bars. Reunited but behind bars, exactly. Right. Okay. Now, some of you have probably heard of this 1997, I believe, Flores court settlement agreement that says you can't have children in detention for more than 20 days. But in fact, you can if the parent consents. And so basically what they're saying is, if you want to be reunited with your kid, you're going to have to be reunited with them behind bars in immigration detention, and you'll have to agree to waive that florist right, agree to keep the family in detention together, or you can agree to give your child into the, to the custody of the federal government. Essentially, remain separated from them, but voluntarily remain separated from them, hmm. as opposed yeah. to involuntarily. Right. All right, we're, we're way over time here, but quick, one last audience question from Adrian. Um, is it true they're making parents pay the $800 fee for DNA testing to reunite? Have you heard anything about that? That's a good question. Um, I, you know, it wouldn't really surprise me. Uh, I know they're being asked to pay fees for a lot of different things, including flight tickets for their kids. And by the way, the, the kids that are young have to go with the sponsor. They, so they have to pay for the ticket for the sponsor, not the sponsor, the, the, the escort, an adult person to accompany the Chaperone, child. Yeah. Chaperone, exactly. Um, and they call it an escort. I know it's kind of a weird word if, when you think about it. Um, but I don't know about the DNA test. I will look into that. Certainly they're being asked to do DNA tests and that costs money and I don't know who's paying for that. Maybe someone else has reported it already. Okay, that's all the time we have. If you like listening to the TripCast every week, we hope you'll try our audio news brief, which shows up every morning on your Amazon Alexa smart speaker or podcast player. Search for Texas Tribune Brief on your favorite podcast app. Thanks to Shiny Ribs for our music and to the Meadows Mental Health Policy Institute, TASBO, and the Independent Bankers Association of Texas, our sponsors this week. On behalf of Evan, Ross, Nina, and our producers, Michael and Todd, this is Patrick. Thanks for listening. Texas talking. Texas talking. Talking